There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, with 27 years of service. And with me tonight, I'm excited he's a substitute co-host, retired NYPD police officer and criminal defense attorney, Joe Murray. How are you doing tonight, Joe? Good to see you. Glad to be here. Well, I, you know something? Uh, whenever I ask you, I, I, I'm never disappointed. You never turn me down. Thank you so much for being a co-host. Phil is in Florida tonight. He's a little nervous that you'll do too well, and, you, and, and he won't have a job anymore. But, uh, I told him not, not to worry. worry Joe, Joe Murray's making six fifty an hour. He's not going to come on a podcast for free, you know. And tonight we have an unbelievable guest, Peter Forcelli. And I'm going to go backwards a little bit. He was an NYPD uh, housing cop, PSA eight actually, and he came up to. Um, you know, housing anti-crime, housing homicide. Then he wound up in Bronx homicide. And he, then he wound up in the ATF, the Federal Unit Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And it's really great to have an expert on guns because we're hearing all this horse shit coming out of these politicians' mouths, the Iron Pipeline, ghost guns, because they're not willing to put the trigger puller away. They want to put the gun away. Right now, my guns are locked in my safe. They're not harming anybody, you know? But when you talk to a lot of these politicians, they're like, it's the guns, it's the guns. And tonight, Peter Ficelli, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Good to be here. You know, Pete, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and a lot of people think that, um, you know, we hear the term active shooter. And you've seen the results of these active shooters. You've been involved in some of the biggest investigations. And you still have your head on straight. And you don't think, let's ban all guns. Because I saw what these guns do. No, because you use common sense. You understand the Second Amendment. And you understand it's the person pulling the trigger, not the gun. And one of, some of the um, cases you're on, Fort Lauderdale, Hollywood International Airport shooting, the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, which I think was just at an anniversary. I don't know if it was the... It's Valentine's Day. Yes, horrible, right? Yes. The, uh, the investigation into Omar Mateen, the shooter at the Pulse nightclub, mass shooting, and his acquisition of the firearms used in that incident. You want to talk about those incidents a little bit, uh, Pete? Sure, sure. But let, let's go back, though. You pointed out something about holding people accountable for violence. The two biggest mass killings I responded to in my career, uh, one was as a uniformed cop, was the Happy Land Social Club fire. Weapon use was a gallon of gas and matches, right? And then, of course, 9-11, all of us had a hand in responding to that, it was box cutters and aircraft. You know, those were the two biggest mass killings I responded to. But yeah, Parkland, obviously, the story everybody knows, you know, a gentleman, not a gentleman, who's, by the way, recently went to trial, um, acquires guns legally. Um, he had some mental health issues. You, you can buy guns legally if you're not adjudicated as mentally defective, which means a judge decides that you're, um, you know, not mentally right. So that prohibits you from buying guns. So he buys guns legally. Um, and, and, Later goes into a school. He was bullied. There were some issues there, and he started shooting other students. Tragic, tragic thing. One of the most difficult crime scenes 
I ever responded to because I'm looking at dead kids, it, you know, in their teens who were just beginning their lives, some of them ready to graduate school. But, um, you know, keep in mind, him having firearms was legal. Him bringing guns onto school grounds is actually a violation of federal law, which is kind of funny because when this happened, all the politicians came down to Florida. All of them came on the stump and talked about, you know, their talking points. Um, in fact, at one point I had to speak to President Trump with the FBI SAC and, and the Attorney General of Florida at the time. And one of the questions came up, hey, why don't we have a law about people not being able to bring guns onto school grounds? And the FBI SAC seemed shocked when I said there is one. Uh, you know, it's part of the Gun Control Act. You can't be within a thousand feet of the school with a firearm. Um, Fort Lauderdale Airport, that individual was posting stuff on social media that said he was sympathetic to ISIS. The FBI interviewed him up in Anchorage, Alaska. They took his gun from him. Um, after they determined that he wasn't prohibited from having a gun, they gave him the gun back. He checked the gun in with the airline, flew across the country to Fort Lauderdale Airport with his gun and his luggage. Uh, again, he followed the TSA regs to do it. Soon as he got his bag off the carousel, walked into the bathroom, took it out of the luggage, loaded it up, came out and shot five people, um, mostly elderly people who were about to go on vacation. Most of them were getting ready to go on cruises, um, snuffed them out, you know, at a time of great excitement for them where they were joyous, you know, about to go on a vacation. And then the Omar Mateen story is another story where FBI knew about an individual. He had posted stuff. He was on their watch list. He went out, he was, a, he was a guard for a company called G4S Solutions, largest security firm in, in the United States. Um, he went, purchased two guns from actually from a retired NYPD cop, uh, filled out the, the paperwork legally. Um, he wasn't prohibited, but he was on the watch list, which, you know, brings up other questions. Um, takes those guns and, and, you know, shoots a bunch of people in the Pulse nightclub. Um, found a gun in his car, the gun actually came back to the security guard company that he never gave back to them, which is another story. Um, but look, the reality is all of these instances were people who, who got guns one way or the other, um, who were at one point on law enforcement's radar um, and things just didn't work. So you, you, you got a lot of people want to question the gun. And I, I understand, you know, when people aren't thinking rationally, it's a tool no different than a drill or a knife, uh, which you could also use to hurt somebody or a car even. But the reality is that there were a lot of missed opportunities beyond, you know, looking at gun legislation. Um, so, I mean, look, what I what it comes down to is holding people accountable for bad acts, in my opinion. Well, Pete, you know, that's what my whole uh, dissertation here is. It's easy for a politician to say, we need more laws. No, we don't need more laws because criminals don't follow the laws. The only ones that follow the laws are people that are licensed gun owners, that are legitimate people. They follow the laws. So when you restrict them, you're not solving any crimes. You're not preventing any shootings. But when you, you, the laws for criminals mean nothing, like you just said, bringing a gun on school property is against the law. And even that you said the special agent in charge or senior agent in charge, whatever that stands for, SEC, special, he, 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 special agent, he didn't even know about that, you know? Right. So it's like, we, no, when politicians say that, they need to be challenged. No, we don't need no more laws because we have laws that prohibit that. But bad guys don't care about the law. Joe Murray, I can see the steam coming out of that white hair. What do you got to say there? You know, I, I have a lot to say about the government, the federal government, the overreach of the federal government. It was never meant to be by the framers for the federal government to legislate criminal law outside of whenever there's a federal hook to it 
meaning federal property, federal officer. You shoot and kill a federal officer, you're subject to a federal death penalty. I get all that. But now legislating that a gun on school property is a federal offense, I'm sure that the jurisdictional hook to make that federal is that the gun was manufactured and transported through interstate commerce. But there is nothing in the world today that is made wholly in one jurisdiction. You know, like the, the, everything comes through interstate commerce and the commerce clause has been so abused by the federal government to get their hands into state act, action like this. So although it's good intentions, I think the state should enact a law saying if you're found with a firearm on school property, you'll be subject to a five-year minimum, something like that. But for the federal government, I think we need to keep them in federal jurisdiction and not involved in the state. That's just my pushback. You know, Joe, one of the things that um, we all watched the riots that happened for two years, uh, you know, with Black Lives Matter, with Antifa, and we saw the unwillingness of the federal government to protect the public. There was an unwillingness to stop the rioters, and which most people on the left called the peaceful protests, peaceful protests that caused billions of dollars in damages and 40 lives were lost. You know, those were peaceful. That's how they define peacefulness. Yeah. But one of the things that really scared me is that, and, and I was never a believer that, oh, if they take the guns away, you know, you need guns in case that's in the Constitution to overthrow the government. I said, oh, that's far-fetched. But when I watched that for two years, that really scared me. When when I, when the the station house in uh, Seattle was attacked a hundred nights in a row and no one stopped it, no one stopped it. That scared me. That's not it's a democracy. You, and the way our government is set up, all of the people should be scared by that, should be outraged by that, and run to the ballot booth and get these people out of office. That's how our government is set up. It's local control. So we get hands-on control as to how we are governed. We have representatives that we elect to enact laws and then chief executives like mayors and, and uh, you know sheriffs in certain jurisdictions that you elect and district's attorney who you elect and they're supposed to be representative of the people. Like when I ran for DA, I looked at it as a job interview that I'm going to represent you, just like I represent clients in court. I'm now representing the public, so it was a job interview. Do you want me to represent you? I think that's what we need more of, but the problem is there's so much voter apathy. 20% of the people, that's a good day to come out for an election. That's outrageous, and that has to stop, and it's starting to. We see that in the last election. There was more gra grassroots candidates coming up. Uh, we had Vicki Palladino, who won as a Republican in Queens County. Joe Casper, Joe Casper won. He beat Paul Vallone in a race for judge. That's like never happened. The Democrats are eight to one in Queens, and they always win those elections. Joe Casper won. People are getting angry. They're getting upset. I was out at the polling site with Vicky Palladino, and I watched it with my own eyes. 
people were coming up to uh, her adversary. I forget his name. Uh, he was a nice guy. But they were coming up to him, and he would stick his hand out, and they'd shake his hand. He said, I will never vote for another Democrat again. You're destroying our city. That's what we need. We need that fire. We need people to come out and elect local politicians, including our Congress representatives and, and, and state senators and whatnot. That's how we make change. And that's how we were set up to make change. We can't always look to the federal government to bail us out of problems. Yeah. You know, I think that I'm hoping that this will spur people on to vote, but um, you know, a lot of the things that we all know is that politicians, they lie all the time. And when people don't know the true facts, uh, they just accept what the politicians say as the truth. And I, uh, the other night on, um, I had um, uh, uh, Lieutenant Joyce, um, who was a 79 squad commander. Uh, he was on the show. And we spoke about a letter that um, Lou Turco wrote to the lieutenants, benevolent associates, all the lieutenants. And he was talking about all the statistics about all the perps being arrested for guns that aren't going to jail or prison. They're all being released. But yet the politicians are asking, they're using these stats. We made this arrest, we made that, but they're cutting them loose. It's like when we first came on the job in the early 80s, they used to, there was that one judge cut him loose, Bruce. Remember that guy? And then a lot of the, it was just, the crime was so out of control that they didn't have room at the inn. That was the term they used, the term they used to say back then, there's no room at the inn. But now there's plenty of room at the inn, but they just don't want to put anyone in jail or in prison. Pete, your comments. Decarceration. That's, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, hey, first, when you talk about Lieutenant Joyce, I imagine you're talking about Tom Joyce. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I I just had a brain fart. I couldn't remember his first name. Yeah, good man. Good man. He gets it. No, I, look, I agree with you. And, you know, I mean, one of the things I got involved with, unfortunately, kind of thrust into, was when I was a supervisor in Arizona, I went up testifying in front of Congress and that whole Fast and Furious scandal. Um, I wasn't involved in that case. I wasn't an agent on that case. I didn't supervise that case. I was an agent, in a, well, supervising a group of agents um, that were working on other matters. But we would arrest or detain, rather, um, people who were clearly smuggling firearms and in one case grenades to Mexico for the cartels. Um, we would get confessions. We would find straw purchasers, get them to roll on traffickers. And about 90% of our cases were being declined. Um, so, I mean, you know, but, but so what happened was, uh, you know, when one of the agents blew the whistle on Fast Furious, the U.S. Attorney's Office, which was very reluctant to prosecute firearms traffickers, all of a sudden rumblings were that they were going to prosecute this guy, John. And I was like, this is BS. And that's what I called Congress. I said, hey, listen, this guy who reached out to you was telling the truth. Give me a subpoena and I'll tell every, everything you want to know. Um, turned into a, like a several year long roller coaster ride. But the reality was when you talk about gun laws, I mean, here we had cartel members buying guns to be trafficked into Mexico to basically conduct an armed war or insurgents against the Mexican government and other cartels. The homicide numbers were unbelievable, like nothing we could ever imagine in the United States. And you had a U.S. attorney's office that really didn't give a crap. Um, so, you know, you, to your point, you talk about gun laws, gun laws, gun laws. There are plenty of gun laws, and, and we all know about the state laws, but federal laws. For example, another one, it's illegal. You can charge someone who steals a gun that traveled, Joe, to your point, in interstate commerce. Um, so if it ever traveled in interstate commerce from a dealer and it gets stolen in a burglary, for example, and you could prove that person 
committed that burglary, you could charge them federally with that burglary or possession of the gun, rather, under the under the Gun Control Act. That is almost unheard of. So you have all of these laws on the books that could make a difference. They don't prosecute them in many parts of the country. And then they turn around and say, hey, we need more gun laws. So to your point, Joe, about overreach, well, the more laws that you get put on the books, the more opportunities you have to stick it to somebody, frankly, um, and um, especially when you're not using what you already have. Another thing I testified about is like straw purchasers. Like, you know, I'm, I have a clean record. And Joe, you're a, you're a trafficker. You come to me, you know, you don't want your, your, the gun to come back to you. So, hey, Pete, buy me a gun and I'll put you $100 on the side. Um, you know, those straw purchases really, were rarely getting prosecuted too because by the time the, the case made it to court and the time a sentence was meted out, there was probably more time spent on the prosecution and that person would wind up in jail. So, you know, so a lot of U.S. attorney's offices were like, hey, I'm not just going to waste my time on that. Well, then the problem is that person could continue to keep buying guns for cartel members. So it is this crazy, vicious cycle that occurs that the politicians get on a soapbox and they want to fix, but the tools to fix it are, are within their reach. They exist. But then you, you have these prosecutors that want to, you know, they want to focus on one thing or the other. And they, you know, they don't want to get politically tied up with this or that, or they'd rather prosecute their political rivals, like we saw in one state not too far from New York recently. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's a mess. And some of these things can be easily fixed if you held people accountable for their conduct and prosecuted them with the laws that are right there on the books that you have. Um, but that requires holding people accountable. It also requires holding uh, prosecutors and their offices accountable to do their jobs sometimes. Exactly. Well, when, you know, when the, the new uh, district attorneys came in, 43 district attorneys citywide quit. They just quit because this whole the carceral policies of not wanting anyone to go to prison, they couldn't stomach what they were hearing from these people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really disgraceful. And the, the other things are with these, the gangs are doing the highest percentage of the violent crime. And that's what I was talking about the other night with Tom Joyce is every time you turn around, they're trying to take another tool away from law enforcement. They say facial recognition is, uh, is racist. Um, shot spotter is racist. Um, some of the other new technologies, um, shot spotter. Well, they can't, they can't blame DNA for that. Cause, but you know, there are those that will do that. They'll say all the new tech, look at that robot they wanted to use on the NYPD that could save cops lives in a hostage situation or a violent situation. They immediately Ocasio Cortez, like that idiot, actually, why was she weighing in on a New York thing? You know? And, Every tool, oh, what I was also thought, databases, gang databases, they they made them get rid of them in, in L.A. And the same thing reminded me of the NYPD. They got rid of the UF-250 database because stop questioning frisk. Oh, my God. That's the you're most, most terrible. What's you're, that? Not allowed, you're not allowed to say question, Bill. You Stop and frisk. No, they, stop they and frisk. We let, we let the media own that. And I right. will not let the media, because every time they say stop and frisk, it's meant to disparage law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I will not let them get away with that. It's stop questioning first. Oh, Mr. Journalist, you don't know what you're talking about? Then don't report on it, you know? Right. It's really stop and question. The frisk yes. has to be a separate, articulable belief that there's a weapon. You right. can't just stop someone because you suspect criminal activity and search them. You have to have that second articulable belief, you know, the weighted jacket, some a bulge, something. Right. Uh, so it's really stop and question. 
You know, Joe, I think you should give classes to journalists to teach them this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah well, as we've learned in the academy, we stop, question, and possibly frisk. Yes. There you go. Possibly right. frisk. Yeah, Not yeah. everyone is a frisk, although it morphed into that. But they became... chose to get rid of 33% of that of that procedure or that, uh, you know, police procedure because they wanted to demonize the whole procedure. So they just called it stop and frisk. I want to just segue to another thing. Criminals now are being emboldened, not just in New York, but in L.A. And this is I'm going to show you some video. And these are what's called follow home robberies. And they're having a huge problem with this in L.A. I'm going to play a little bit of this news report by News Nation. And um, you'll see what I'm talking about here. Things in L.A. are targeting the rich and famous in Hollywood and Beverly Hills by following them home for their watches, their expensive jewelry. In fact, they're so organized that they're sending in advanced teams to scout the victims as they dine out at fancy restaurants or shops at high-end retailers. And then they follow up with multiple carloads of gang members who follow the victims and swarm them when they get home. Two people have been shot dead. Residents are now being told by police not to wear expensive jewelry, to walk in pairs, to be aware of suspicious people following them. And this is insane. This is L.A. This week alone, the span of two days, there have been five of these so-called follow-home robberies. In one of the cases, a suspect walked to the car of a woman as she was leaving a jewelry store. They shattered her driver's side window. She ended up getting out of her car and tried to run away. But they followed her in the silver Dodge Charger, even as she is begging, passing cars for help. The suspect then hit her with their car. She fell to the ground. They got out of the car with guns pointed at her. You can see a good Samaritan there in the white sweatshirt trying to help. The victim, very smartly, throws her Rolex under the street. One of the suspects grabs it and they speed off. The woman, incredibly, only had minor injuries and is doing okay, at least physically. <clears throat> this was noon on a Monday, right in the heart of downtown L.A. It's happening far too often. Look at this video from last month. You can see the victim being pistol whipped by gang members who followed him back to his apartment from a ritzy restaurant. They waited for him to get out of his Lamborghini before demanding his watch and viciously beating him. And in this follow-home robbery from late last year, the victims were waiting for the elevator when two armed men burst in behind them and stripped them of their watches, phone, and jewelry. LAPD noticed a surge in follow-home robberies late last year when they clocked 165 of these attacks. So far this year, there have been 56 cases, which puts it on track to exceed that number from last year. Police have formed a task force, identified at least 17 gangs who've been doing this. They've made dozens of arrests for robbery, weapons, and murder charges. But the police chief saying this week, that hasn't done much to deter these criminals. In fact, they're just getting more brazen and better organized. These are instances that we don't believe are spontaneous. We believe many times these offenders are scouting out locations, sending in, sending up advanced people, may even have relationships with parking valets or store, uh, store employees. The head of the L.A. Follow Home Robbery Task Force saying this week he's never seen this kind of unchecked criminal activity from such large, coordinated groups in his three decades on the force. So what the heck is going on? Amazing, right? 
Uh, I remember in um, in Washington Heights, they had the home invasion task force because there were, but home invasions were mostly done to drug dealers. Right. You know, the home invasion crew was targeting other drug dealers for stash or for money. But every once in a while, they well, not every once in a while, very often they'd hit the wrong apartment and they would torture innocent people. But this is outrageous. And what this is a result of is a, they won't keep the gang database so they can track these people through investigation. And B, when they do catch these guys, the district attorney won't prosecute them or they're out the next day. This is dysfunctional government. Yes. Well, hey, Bill, if you remember back in the day, and I think they're still active, there used to be Red Rum. DEA had the DEA task force. Yeah. Those guys were amazing. And this is kind of what they focused on. But yeah, it was mostly drug robberies. And my first case as an ATF agent in New York City was a home invasion crew. It turned out to be 23 defendants when it was over. And some, you know, to be two guys one day, six guys another day. Those guys we were able to nail on 145 robberies that they had to plead guilty to, six murders, kidnapping. But what, what blew my mind was, you know, uh, most of them, like we said, were drug robberies. They would put GPS trackers on cars. They used family members as snitches to say where stuff was, uh, was uh, stashed. Yes, the violence usually was reported when they hit the wrong house or when things got out of hand and they went up killing somebody. But the scary thing with these robberies and what I learned working these kind of robberies is once these folks get into someone's house, like it's one thing to rob someone in the street where you want to get in, get out as witnesses. Once they get into somebody's house where they, especially if they could tie them up, duct tape over their mouth or, or gag them somehow. Uh, I've seen crazy torture of people burned with irons, people stabbed them. I'm sure you've seen it in the Heights as well. Um, you know, because they're, they're no longer in the public eye. They're behind closed doors. They can, you know, they still want to get out as fast as they can, but they have the element of time. Some of the most heinous crimes I've seen started as home invasion robberies. So that this is becoming a trend is actually quite scary. You know, it goes back to what we were talking about before. The unwillingness of the government to fight this. The police are very capable of knocking this whole follow home robbery team out. They're very capable of doing that. Street but if there's crime, no prosecution, go ahead, Joe. Right. Street crime, anti-crime. I mean, right. that's what they do. They're out there looking for victims and looking for perpetrators. And, and when they meet up, there's the collar, you know? Well, well it goes back here. to, you know, stop question and frisk is, is a dirty term these days. And, you know, you saw what the reaction was to the shootings. He put cops in these ESU type uniforms with a big police and a big camera on the front. Why don't you just wear a Bozo the Clown outfit, you know, in well, unmarked cars? That gives you about, you know, a tenth of a section of uh, second of surprise where in anti-crime, you know, the yeah. stealthiness of wearing plain clothes lets you blend in and let you move in on people rather quickly, you know? But all of that proactive policing seems to be going away, you know, doing verticals. Look at that one where the guys were waiting for the elevator. If a cop was doing a vertical up and down the stairs, maybe they would have ran into him or the flight therefrom and grabbed them. But the proactive policing is, is being pulled back. They don't want it. They want cops out of the neighborhood now. The residents really don't. I've never heard the residents show up at the precinct saying, would you stop sending cops down my block? I mean, they all want more cops. But it's these woke politicians that are saying, no, this is racist. You have too many cops in this precinct. And that's why you're making all these arrests. 
go to the white neighborhoods and police those neighborhoods. No, I love having cops in my neighborhood. You know, it, it's not my neighborhood that needs the police. It's just sad that what, what's happening. They're victimizing these people. They're, they're teaching them to be victims. You know, it's like we spoke about off the air, that if government is unwilling to protect the people through the police, then perhaps all these government officials should have their security removed. Let's take their security away because then they can feel like a private citizen, what a private citizen feels like walking around in, in New York City and let them feel what it's like that to have an armed guard with you. You know, the problem is they barely do any work as it is, and they're going to do even less if you do that. <laughs> I swear <laughs> to God, that, that's true. That's very true. So, Pete, you know, the the big thing we're talking about too, and in, in, in your expertise is, you know, when people hear these politicians, and Eric Adams said it last week, uh, he started blaming the iron pipeline and the ghost guns and. And I think that letter from the uh, from the uh, Luterco was specifically aimed at Adams, saying, "No, th that's bullshit." And he he did the statistics and the small percentages that have anything to do with the iron pipeline and the ghost guns, and said, "This this is the problem: the non-prosecution of the people that are pulling the trigger." Well, absolutely. Look, like some forth. If people don't fear consequence. They can do what they want. And when the message comes out with, look, they, they were, I brought up Arizona before. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona never said, hey, we won't prosecute you. You have prosecutors now going on the record saying that they, they're not going to prosecute certain types of crimes. And when people think they can get away with a little bit, they're going to, you know what you're saying, you give somebody an inch, they're going to take a mile. Uh, and as far as the iron pipeline goes, look, there, there have been individuals who have trafficked firearms from states where it's a little bit easier to get guns into places where it's more difficult to get guns for years. Chicago, a lot of the guns come, for example, from like Northern Indiana. A lot of the guns that, that get trafficked into New York come from the Carolinas. And like a typical scheme, if I could describe it, he would be, you know, you get some guys from, you know, any neighborhood in New York City, they go down to, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, or Spartansburg was another popular town. And they would go into a strip club and they would start talking to strippers. Strippers were common straw purchasers. But when I watched, uh, you know, putting some of these cases together. Not that I did a lot of trafficking cases when I was in New York. And, um, you know, ladies would get enamored with these big city guys and they'd, you know, schmooze up to them and offer them some extra money. You know, here girls are degrading themselves dancing on a pole for money, uh, you know, to make a couple extra hundred dollars to go and lie on a form. There's no big deal. So they would go into a gun store, lie on the form. The dealer doesn't know he's selling to people who are going to straw purchase the gun for. He knows they're legitimate, which is another whole story, how they demonize gun dealers, uh, you know, yeah. the left, uh, when most of the really good people who actually gave us a lot of tips that we were able to work a lot of cases when I was an agent. But the, so what happened is they would, uh, the young ladies would give these guns to these guys from New York City, wherever that they were enamored with. Um, the guns would get trafficked up to New York. They'd show up at a crime scene. We would then find out about it, go speak to them. And the common scheme was, oh, I moved and, you know, the movers stole my gun or I didn't know it was stolen or they would, or they would report it stolen knowing that they sold it to a trafficker. Um, but again, going back, they demonized the gun industry, saying that most of these gun dealers are you know, kind of this shady gray market type folks, when that's absolutely not the case. You know, straw purchasers are committing a crime. They're not going to prosecute them for lying on the form and giving the gun to someone that they know is going to traffic it. Instead, they want to demonize the legitimate business guy who's who's being handed a form and an ID and saying, oh, this looks like you. And 
you know, you're saying that you're not prohibited. You're saying the gun is for you. Um, imagine if they didn't make those transactions, they'd be accused of racism or, yeah. or, or whatever. So, I mean, it's, it's a no-win situation for the folks in the gun industry. And what really used to bother me, especially during the Bloomberg administration, when I think he did some good things for law enforcement, but he demonized the gun industry like it was going out of style. Here's a guy that when we were in Arizona, when I was working gun showcases, going after this, again, the legitimate gun dealers used to tip us off saying, hey, this guy here, he's not licensed. And I think he's selling guns that, you know, he's he's you know, gotten you know from the gray market. And that's how we work some of our cases. But there were occasions where, and you guys might remember this, he had like private investigators that he would send in to lie on forms. Um, and then they would put them on the table and, and have this big press conference. Well, look at the guns my people were buying. Well, they lied on the form. They straw purchased guns. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, they should be arrested for lying. <laughs> yeah, and it was all the big publicity stuff. You know, but, yeah. So now, you know, it, that was the problem. Is you know, instead of folks really dealing with the problem, everybody wants to get up and grandstand and point fingers in different directions when a lot of the solutions are right there in front of us. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the problem. I want I want to just play a little bit of this. These are some uh, this morning. Police are looking for the suspects to exchange gunfire on a Queen Street in broad daylight. You can see the two men pull out guns and start shooting at one another. It happened yesterday, uh, just afternoon on Linden Boulevard in St. Albans. Nobody got hurt. Both men took off. He left his drugs. You see, suspect briefly returning <laughs> to the scene to grab a bag that he dropped during the shooting. New this morning, a man has been arrested for attacking three sanitation workers on Long Island. Well, you see that. Thank God those guys don't know how to shoot. You know, see, they're always like trying to help the bullet get out of the gun. Like they tell you don't do that at the range. Thank, thank God these guys can't shoot. But you know something? If those guys get caught, you think they'll prosecute them? Well, they'll plea bargain it down because they want to get it off their desk, you know, lower the docket. I mean, the, yeah. the other thing that's killing us is the no bail. You know, yes. People, there are some yes. people who are violent people who need to be in jail. And listen, one of the things I was known for towards the end of my career is I got... I got nine innocent people out of prison, eight for murders they were convicted of that they did not commit. Um, you know, so I do not believe that innocent people should spend a second in jail. But by the same token, if you're a very violent person with a propensity towards violence, and you've proven that time and time and time again, well, there's a place for you. And unfortunately, that place is a penitentiary. And I'm saying yeah. this, of course, to, to two cops, but also a defense attorney. Yeah. Um, yeah. We need to do a good job, follow the evidence. But if the evidence says that someone's a violent person and they're a threat to the public, they need to sit in jail. It's just really yeah. that simple. And when You know, Pete, I, I never met in my entire police career, I never met a single cop that wanted to put someone in jail or prison that didn't do the crime. I, they just didn't. They had a sense of justice. And they would tell the DA, look, I... I had a guy one time in my rip that told the DA, this guy didn't do it. I don't think he did it. The DA says he did it. And she prosecuted it and got a conviction. He was like, I don't think he did it. You know, what What? What? what could he do? He told her, I don't think he did it. And no, she no. still went forward and she got a conviction. And that's, you know, a little scary. The last person I got out of jail was a guy who was accused of killing a retired detective in a grocery store robbery in the Bronx. I was one of the detectives that was on the task force that put him in jail. It was a mistaken ID case. Two witnesses picked this person out. Years later, the feds arrested some guys for being felons in possession. These people come in and proffer to be involved in that robbery. So they show the, the, the photo of the person that we arrested, and they're like, we never saw this guy. So they're, they're pleading guilty to a robbery murder. They're going to get sentenced federally for it. And they're saying, hey, we've never seen this guy. So they presented to the Bronx DA's office, Darcel Clark, brand new DA, left left of center, 
Um, nope. Okay. So this person goes to a hearing in front of a judge. I come up and testify. Uh, you know, by this time, the evidence starts to become overwhelming. This person is innocent. The judge gets sick. So they push off the hearing. Another judge, it, it gets pushed to him. He does. He's not convinced by the evidence because the NYPD homicide file, forgive me for saying, goes missing. So now it's me testifying from 20 something year old memories um, and, you know, and what's on the court record. So anyway, finally, the, they find um, not the DA's office who was looking for it, but the defense folks find some of the documents. So I get called back up to New York and I testify again at the third hearing. And now some of the stuff that the, that the DA's office was saying I was fudging in my memories is now corroborated by 20 something year old documents. So now the judge is like, right, I'm throwing out the conviction, right? overwhelming evidence of this person's innocence the da's office takes the guy to trial again the jury sits down after the testimony is done they pick a foreman and acquit this guy within 30 minutes of picking the foreman and acquitting the guy a tearful jury apologized to the guy the fact that the da's office went to charge it clearly innocent man again really infuriated me anyway the guys he sues he wins within 30 days of winning his lawsuit the guy dies of a blood infection Oh. So he's out of jail for two years, wins the settlement that his family has now. But I mean, talk about a horrible, horrible situation from a DA's office that's allegedly woke and allegedly looking for justice. It's one of the things that really, I got to a point where I was almost embarrassed at the time I spent, I'm sorry to say, with the NYPD, um, because I just was so irate. I've gotten over that. But, you know, you talk about justice. Some of these DAs are not out for justice. They're out to make names for themselves and to be politicians. And that's it. But to your point, um, yeah, I've never worked with a cop that wanted to put a bad guy, an innocent guy in jail either. They wanted to put bad people in jail. Absolutely. So. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel members with five different levels and you see the folks in the chat with the green font they're all members of the uh police off the cuff real crime stories youtube family and we appreciate all you guys that support us you know i just don't know i i i want doing this show uh and interviewing all the different people and all uh the folks from law enforcement i i just i just like to get the the word out there what the truth is because they even we had there was a an interview recently of Tiffany Caban who ran for Queens District Attorney, and she said during that interview she was um, extolling the virtues of violence interrupters, which is just total absolute one hundred percent horseshit. And she said used this to a statistic saying violence interrupters they're unbelievable. She goes in one instance they've dropped shootings eighty percent. And the two journalists, uh, the show, show, they didn't challenge her. I was like, I would have been all over her. Wait a minute. Where did you get those statistics? Right. Who, who, how, you know, how do you prove where? I want to see them. What? How do you prove a negative like that? All these violence interrupters stopped crime without actually counting people. You know, I, I just don't see it. But, Joe, I also would like to know, A, who are they? Yeah. Let me, I want to see their resumes. Oh, Former gangbanger did 10 years in Attica. Does that qualify this guy to be a violence interrupter? And also, how much are they getting paid? To me, this is a money grab of taxpayers' money to unqualified people that politicians 
are selling and lying about the success of this. I want to see statistics like academic numbers, statistical numbers like the police department puts out every single month with the seven major crimes. I want to see the same for these violence interrupters or else cut the money, get them out of here and send them home. Well, I just don't problem. think that's the answer. I mean, I know that some of these people may be well-intentioned, good-hearted people, but I think education is a violence interrupter. Employment is a violence interrupter. A good day's work, a good family, support, you know, like when you earn something, you, you appreciate it more than something given to you. And I think this, you know, generation is is losing that. They don't have that. Uh, background or home life where they're, you know, taught that there are consequences for your actions. It's the instant gratification. It's the cell phone. It's the Snapchat. It's uh, I, I don't think this is going to work and it's going to get worse. No, Joe, I happen to agree with you. And, you know, we've spoken about um, the boxing programs like that. You were involved in the PBA boxing and, uh, you know, the, the boxing programs that the NYPD supports with Pat, Pat Russo, Russo yeah. and a great, great program, you know, police athletic league, the baseball leagues up in the three, four uh, cops and the kids there guys have done tremendous stuff. And, to, and a lot, you know, one of the things in the three, four, which can actually bring tears to your eyes, these kids that came up with this um, uh, baseball league up from the three, four, so many of them have actually become cops, which is fantastic. You know, yeah. I think what, what the old chief of patrol, Pachado, I think he was part of that program. Wow. And not only did he become a cop, but he became the chief of patrol. So amazing success stories like that. Look, I'm not all about like locking people up and throwing away the key. I agree, you know, education. But these violence interrupters don't lie to us about their success when you have no proof that it is successful. Yeah. That's all you guys have no comments about this? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look, I agree. The other thing I, I'm concerned about is, you know, like look, academia now. I mean, academia has kind of taken the other side. And, you know, I, I mean, not all, obviously, but a lot of the major institutions, the respected institutions, Harvard, Yale, they're not pro-law enforcement. They don't understand. Look, um, the people who are getting hurt because of the stance that folks are taking, that includes the media and that includes hard left politicians, it, it, it's it's actually hurting the people they claim to be protecting, and that's people of color. People aren't dropping like flies in Beverly Hills or Southampton or Georgetown. It's in the neighborhoods of color where people are getting hurt and where, you know, where the numbers, the crime numbers are returning to what they were in the bad old days in the 1980s and the 1990s. So I, I and how people don't see that is what really just blows my mind. But again, you got to blame the media for that because they see things their way as well. And the other thing is, look, there's, there's Fox News, there's Newsmax, there's OAN, there's hard right news. And you got CNN, MSNBC. By the way, one of my best friends is a CNN reporter, believe it or not. Um, they're, you know, hard left. You know, no one's in the middle telling news anymore. They've, they've all become like these these propaganda arms for the two political parties. And I think yeah. a lot of Americans are tired of the, of the, you know, the two parties being on these far sides of the spectrum, at least to be a popular politician. At least. I like to take yeah. a football field. These guys are in the end zones. Most of the American people are on the field. You know what I mean? They're in the middle. They want to be in the middle. They want they they want safety for their kids. They want education. They want a better life for them and their family. They're not looking to change things so dramatically the way some folks want to change them, I think. So, look, there's a lot of problems that need to be fixed. And it's politicians. It's the media. It's academia. It needs to get back to teaching, especially in younger grades, math, 
reading, writing, the things that make us successful and good when we get out into the world to be able to do a job. If we keep teaching the way we're going to teach it at these lower levels with all this propaganda stuff and all of these little things that, you know, flavors of the day, I call them, that the Chinese and these other countries where they still value a real education are going to eat our lunch at some point. You know, they already are, you know, folks, I'm going to take a quick, I'm going to take a quick commercial break. You see him, he's on the show tonight. Joseph Murray, attorney at law, jmurray-law.com. If you guys need a great defense attorney, you can see he's passionate about his job, about what he does. And he knows both sides of the fence. He was a former police officer. And uh, if you want to reach Joe Murray, you can call him at 718-514-3855. Or you can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. I'll vouch for Joe Murray. He's a good guy. You can you see him on the show today. He's got a nice suit, and he wears that suit to, to court. He's in court almost every day. <laughs> John Beatty Law, www.jbdlaw.com. For over 15 years, John has litigated some of the largest accident and malpractice cases and verdict settlements in the country. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beatty litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. John Beatty Law, www.jbdlaw.com. You know these attorneys got money, man. They're advertising on our show, right? <laughs> he made, so he made the, the smart move doing the uh, civil uh, litigation. Two hundred <laughs> right. million went, dollars in verdicts—that's pretty good. He, he went. He went for the big dollars. You know, he's uh, Joe Murray's. He's still in the trenches. You know, he's still in the, in the criminal defense attorney trenches. So, where you know, where do we go from here? I mean. I I really it it pains me and all all three of us we were on the job when uh, it was broken window style policing, and when you tell people that in New York City in the seven major crimes they dropped it seventy percent in twenty years seventy percent which if you tr- if you put homicides alone that accounted for thousands of more people alive because of broken window style policing. But you would think from the other side that that never happened, that broken windows policing was a total failure. And that's what what they preach these days. And we're here to tell them, no, we have the statistics to show you it was a total, total success. And everything has to be tweaked. And, you know, when people talk about criminal justice reform, yeah, we're okay with that. Certain things needed to be reformed. But it didn't need an overhaul like what they're talking about because – this huge overhaul that they were talking about. Now they're, you know, the whole thing defund the police. Now that all those defunding cities, they're refunding them and putting more money into law enforcement. Look, the NYPD lost a billion dollars from the police department. And what, you know, they played some number games with that. They just took school safety off the uh, NYPD docket there. And that was probably a big part of the budget. And they did some other slick moves, which only New York city knows how to do. Right. But so it didn't hurt as much, but th- the police need a big budget. With you know, there's thirty five thousand cops in this city, and they're needed. You need that many cops to police this city. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bill, you know, the, the one thing that I just don't understand, why is it so difficult for people to understand what deterrence does? Now, and I'll give you an example, even the turnstile, jump in the turnstile. If you see and you're in line, like at Penn Station, trying to get on the, the two train and you, you're in line to swipe your card and somebody walks off the line, opens the gate and walks in and nothing happens to them. Do you think it's more likely another person's going to do that? They're going to jump off the line and do that and another person? But what if, and this used to happen, I remember the strict enforcement, there would be plain clothes guys there, and they're locking people up in suits. It didn't matter. You're going to jail. You're going through the system. When you see that, is that a deterrence? Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to take a chance. I don't want to yeah. spend a night in jail. You're not going to have a record. You're not going to go to Rikers, but you're going to go through the system. It's a precinct condition. You go through the system. To me, that's a deterrence. And when people see that happening right in front of them, they're going to refrain and adjust their conduct. But when they see people walking through the gate, you know, willy nilly and, and nobody's holding them accountable, more people are going to do that. Just like this de decline to prosecute uh, criminal mischief under $250, which is Alvin Bragg's thing. So people are walking into stores and just grabbing stuff. If I'm a kid and I want to go buy a soda and I'm with a friend of mine and he just grabs it, puts it in his jacket and leaves and nobody stops him, nobody arrests him. Why is the next kid going to say, well, why am, what am I, an idiot paying for this when nobody stops you anyway? They're incentivizing crime now instead of deterring criminal activity. And that's really affecting our kids, you know, this raising the age law now they're using these young kids because they know they're going to family court and they're the ones that they're given the gun to hold you know because they can't be prosecuted they're going to go to family court if i need the gun he'll give it to me and and when they were exploiting these kids now but people don't see the harm that's coming uh, yeah. it's shocking to me I think there's another issue that I think they've made very difficult too. Like one of the things when I look back at my career, and I've, you know, I've been in a number of different roles, you know, both with, with the uh, housing and then with NYPD and then with ATF. Um, one of the ones I was the most fond of was candidly walking a beat in the projects. I walked the beat. I was, you know, I didn't take any BS. If you were out of line, you were going to get locked up. Um, but I got to know people and you get to talk to people. You get to know who the good people are on your beat, who the shitheads are. Um, and the good people really wanted you there. Um, and look, as you got to deal with some of the problem children um, and they knew you weren't going to tolerate their stuff, some of them you would win over and they would eventually be on your side and they would even give you information and tip you off. Um, so I think that community policing, you know, when it's done where you're not too kind and gentle, you got to still be the police. I think that works. You got to build that trust. You got to be there. You can't just be rolling in in a sector car, hitting somebody over the head with a club, locking them up for assault. And then there's got to be that relationship. Well, they've made this this um, anti-police sentiment so strong in some of these neighborhoods that it would be very difficult to even bring that back because you can't yeah. put a cop alone walking a beat in a project to build those relationships because of the, the current climate that that cop would probably be in danger um, of assault or worse uh, because they've made us the enemy, us being law enforcement. And I think that's really tragic because when I look back at those times, there's some of those fond memories I had. 
And if I can go back and do any one, and I've had some pretty good jobs at ATF too, but if I can go back and do any one of those jobs again right now, I would gladly put on a uniform and walk a beat in some of the projects I walked a beat in had the climate not changed to what it is today. It was really a rewarding job to get to know people. And look, in the projects, you know, they, those folks didn't look like me, um, but we got to know each other. We got to respect each other. Um, and it was it was good for both, for us and for them. You know, that, that trust is something that you just can't build back in a day or a week or a year. So what they've damaged in a short amount of time is going to take quite some time to get back. And the sad part they don't realize is getting it back is not going to be pretty. Policing isn't always a pretty thing. Um, yeah. We're not perfect. You know, we, we do our best and we make mistakes and sometimes enforcing a law, especially when you only look at a snippet of a, of a video that's shot on a cell phone, can, can appear ugly at times. Um, but unfortunately, that ugliness sometimes is necessary to keep order so that people can be safe. We all remember back in the day where you, you walked into a park in a project, no kids were playing. They were locked up in the house because their parents didn't want them to get killed. And all you saw on the ground were spent shells and crack vials. So it's it's kind of sad to see that we're going back to to that, you know, here after after all the success and the the ground that we gained in the nineties and two thousands to go back to where we are now is really it's it's sad. And it's not sad for us, it's sad for the people that live in those neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, Pete, I think the biggest game changer too is this whole um cell phone technology. I mean, you see retards on the train watching as someone's getting robbed and they're, they're videoing it, yelling, uh, you know. World star, world star, you know, like th that's a moron to me. There's something wrong with that person's brain, you know, that instead of maybe helping and stopping the robbery, they're there with their stupid phone video. And that same thing is going on with the policing. And it's meant as an intimidation factor when a cop takes um, enforcement action and you got 10 idiots with their phone trying to intimidate the cop from doing his job, you know, and to Adams, to his credit, a couple of weeks ago, he said, don't you get too close to my cops with yourself. I was I was like, wow, yeah. he actually said that? That's great, you know, because that should, a certain level of obstructing governmental administration, if they get too close, should be allowed to be prosecuted or at least arrested for, because it really is an intimidation factor towards, towards the police officers that are trying to take enforcement action. And it's, yeah. it, it, you know, it's a hard, it's tough enough to take enforcement action as it is with all the other things, the diaphragm law and this, that, and the other thing uh, with all these idiots in the city council that are anti-police. I mean, it, it's just, it's a very, very tough job to do. And it's nothing like the job that we came on. And I came on in 85. I think you came on before that, right, Pete? No, I, came you... on, I came on in, in 80, January of 87. But, you know, oh, okay. there's another thing that used to happen. And I just thought because I had more hair than you, I was a little old. Uh, some, of my, July 87. Yeah, <laughs> some of my hair quit, so I fired the rest. But no, the, the other thing, truthfully, is back in the day, look, there were some really bad people that we dealt with. They were criminals. They took pride in being criminals. But there was this kind of weird code, and this is going to sound strange to the folks who are watching who want law enforcement. If they resisted arrest and you had to use force, they expected that. They almost respected yeah. that. It was almost like this kind of weird relationship that we had with really bad guys that they that they would test you. And when you showed them that you were going to win, our job was not to fight fair. Our job was to win. It was this kind of respect for that relationship, as odd as that sounds. That's gone, too. Now, everything yeah. is the police are demonized. The police are bad. Um, you know, civil litigation for every little thing, which is good for the attorneys, I guess. But it, it, it's not good for, for the communities, you know. It, it's really not.
Well, yeah. you know, they call it they call it the uh, the Chauvin effect, and before that, it was uh, the, the Michael the Ferguson effect with Michael Brown, and right. there was a bunch of years that were really really bad for the profession of policing. But instead of politicians, and specifically, I'll call them out, Democrats totally went to the left and didn't back the police. And now that they realize it's polling very badly, all of a sudden they're acting like, we never said defund the police. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And I'll show you where you said it. Because now it's polling very badly. And they're all pretending that they never intended to defund the police. But guess what? That's also the beauty of video and cell phone footage. Because you did say that. And a lot of them were backing the rioters during the riots where the police were being attacked. And I don't forget that. I'm not on the job anymore, but I certainly as hell do not forget that. Yeah. Well, I also blame us because we elect these idiots or we allow them to be elected because we're not voting. And that's a problem. And I always try to promote that. I mean, there are so many good candidates were coming out for the first time. This guy, Mike Rakebrandt, I think you did did a show with him, Bill, right? He's Santos? Seven, no, Mike Rakebrandt. He's a 7-1 precinct detective, active right now. Okay. The guy was in the Navy. He's a Purple Heart recipient. He was in two shootings on the job. Like, the guy is real deal. He's out there. He sees what's happening. He knows what's going on. He decided, screw it. I'm running. He's running for Congress out in uh, it's a district out in Suffolk. I was so happy to see this guy step up and come forward. You know, here's a guy with real life world experience. He knows what it's like to be a soldier in the military and and what the veterans are going through. He knows what's happening on the street in the neighborhoods that the rest of these politicians don't want to go to and and they're diagnosing it from their woke pillows from uh you know, the, their armed guards surrounding them. I, I really love to see candidates like that coming forward. And it's our fault if we don't get these people elected. This year, more than any other year, I think is the year for for good people, good candidates, first-time candidates to come out here with good intentions and do the job. R- respect what we want. You know, well, let's vote for the same people with the same values that we want. So we don't have to keep saying these Democrats uh, that they're garbage. They do get them out, get get rid of them. You know that's Joe. Powerful. It's 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 amazing, but you, uh, you know, you, New York City and New York State is heavily heavy duty Democrat, and the evidence of that is they elected that idiot De Blasio twice. I mean, you didn't have enough of him after four years, and they reelected the guy almost unopposed. It was, but I it was, think the voter turnout was like 17%. Look at AOC, who she took out, um, what's his name, Crowley, Crowley, who was kind of next in line to be speaker. How? Yeah. Because he was an absentee landlord. He wouldn't even show up at campaign events. And she got her militant people out there door knocking, you know, trying to sell this thing. And she won. You know, I got to give her credit for doing that. She broke the shoe leather, was out there and meeting the people. We have to do that on our side. We can't sit back and just say, oh, these politicians suck. We got to support the good ones and get them elected. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's just it's really an uphill battle in New York City and New York State. Uh, I mean, look, Hochul, I, there's a, a good Republican candidate from Nassau County named Lee Zeldin. I don't know if he has the juice to defeat Hokolo. 
you know, because she's got all of that Democratic Party momentum. She's probably got a lot of Cuomo's people. And, uh, I mean, even Cuomo's rattling the cage like he's going to run for something. I don't think he can right now, but, uh, you know, he'll be back at some point. I do believe, though, I do believe it's because people are sitting on their hands and staying home. I think to Blasio, there was 17% of some odd people that turned out. This last election, I witnessed it. People walking up to uh, Tony Avella, who was like a center you know, Democrat, and he was well-liked in the district. And Vicky Paladino, essentially, this would be her first, this is her first term uh, as an elected official. They were walking up to Tony and saying, I will never vote for another Democrat. And they're not just Republicans. There are people, you know, we just we just did, what's his name? I forget his name. Scott Pressler. I love this guy, Scott Pressler. He's so energetic and, and he's so outspoken. He organized a voter registration drive at gas stations, you know, when the gas just went crazy. And we went out there and, you know what, I'm going to do my part. And went out there and we're talking to people. We have signs. There were so many people who were signing up to register who've never voted. And some were Democrats changing parties because, you know, the signs we were saying, look, this is you know, vote vote Republican and, and get the prices down. You know, we were energy independent under Trump. So it's happening. Joe, I thought you were going to be part of the, the rent is too damn high party. <laughs> <laughs> we have to do it, though. That's the problem. We're sitting back and critiquing all these politicians, and we're not doing anything to get rid of them. No, you're right. You're 100% right. You know, I just want to shout out to uh, – Scotty Wagner, I know he just had back surgery, and I see you in the chat. He's always been a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff. Scotty, I hope you're feeling better and healing fast. Uh, Lieutenant Pete is in the chat. Angela Eng, love Scott Pressler. Woo! A KH Walker, Julie LaRosa Trudeau is worse than anything they have in the USA. I don't know. We got a lot of, uh, you know, we're trying to turn the corner on this these attacks against the police. And part of our goal on Police Off the Cuff is to try to get the word out there. And also, you know, I don't mind making politicians feel uncomfortable when I call when I call to, I don't know how much power I have, but calling to remove their security, things like that, call them out on the bullshit things they say, the Iron Pipeline, and we need more laws. And I have people on like Pete, Peter Forcelli saying, no, we have the laws. You don't need new laws. You just have to enforce the ones against the trigger pullers. That's the right. thing. Not the gun, the trigger puller, right? We got to make a little slogan for that. Don't go after the gun, go after the trigger puller. Absolutely. Accountability, personal responsibility. It's a thing of the past. They're not teaching kids. They don't don't understand that. They all get trophies. They're all, you know, it's this instant gratification. They have to learn that you're responsible for your actions. And by continually releasing them, catch and release, catch and release, where do they learn that? They're just not getting it. And it started in the schools where the teachers were handcuffed and they couldn't do anything. Now they're out of school and now the police can't do anything. And now the prosecutors are saying, look, we can't do this. It's not politically expedient to prosecute these kids. So they learn no accountability, bail reform, it's catch and release and they commit more crimes because if I have three dockets, I can negotiate a global settlement for the same time, all concurrent. 
and wrap it up. And the prosecutors love it. All right, I got rid of three cases. It, Joe, it, someone it, in the chat is saying that you're a politician. <laughs> so Joe Murray is a is a retired police officer, got his law degree from scratch uh, after he retired. Had, actually, I had to even get his undergraduate degree. You talk about a success story. Yeah, he had that. no college, had to bang out his undergraduate, then got his law degree. How many people could do that? It's pretty damn impressive. And Joe, as someone was asking, was he a police officer? Yeah, he was a police officer. He was also uh, a boxer, heavyweight boxer on the PBA team. He's got a great story. We had him on very early. He told his whole story, which is a fascinating story, and involves taking a collar while on duty in uniform. Who knows criminal <laughs> justice better than me? Locked up That's in uniform. Right. He, knows, he even says, I know it from both sides of the fence. As a perp, a cop, and now an attorney. <laughs> Yeah, the holistic approach. That's right. That's right. I I actually the, the New York Post did like a full page thing when I was running for district attorney. I was like, I'm a I was a violent felon myself. I know exactly what they're going. It's a violent felon. <laughs> he they didn't even but you know, he was easy to catch because he was right in the squad. <laughs> they, they didn't have to like chase him. Standing away from me, nobody actually wanted to approach me. That's right. They didn't even have to chase you, Joe. They didn't... <laughs> That's great. So, you know, guys, this is uh, – obviously, we didn't solve all the world's problems tonight, but that's that's not our goal. But, Pete, you're a very knowledgeable guy, and uh, I would love to have you come on the show again down the road. Uh, it was funny. when I first asked Pete to come on the show, and he was still working for the ATF. So these bureaucrats said, oh, yes, write us like a 49 – so I write them a 49. All of a sudden, they start making more. I like, forget it. What are you kidding me? That's as far as I go. They wanted like me to jump more hurdles after that. I said, no, that is the only hurdle I'm going to. I wrote the 49. That's it. End of story. And then I said, I'll have to wait till you retire. And that's what I did. Yeah. Well, I was close. I was close. And well, the other thing is when we were under the Department of the Treasury, which is pre 9 11, you know, 2003, they moved us to DOJ. Um, we were working for an organization, forgive me, Joe, full of lawyers. Made things very difficult. They're very sheepish about, uh, you know, public appearances and public speaking. And they yeah. know that I speak my mind because that's how I always operated. It was not a yes man. So they knew I was going to come here and, and be honest with you, which kind of, I guess, made them nervous. But here I am. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's great. And, and you mentioned before Scott Wagner. I didn't know Scott had back surgery. But when I was a rookie detective in PSA 7, Scott was in the Homicide Major K Squad. This is going back to the housing days. And he was actually one of my role models because Scotty lived the job and it was a great detective. So uh, if he's listening, Scotty, heal up fast, brother. I miss yeah, you. he was. I, I I think he's in the chat. I don't. Uh, I I saw him before. I don't see him now, but he was in the chat before. He's probably can't sit in a chair for too long Good after man. you have back right. surgery. So you know, folks, I've been covering that uh, the murder of the woman in, in Queens. Uh, um, Gal is her last name. It's it's sort of a a fascinating case. In the early on, I thought it had to be someone in her family. And now it's not looking that way, but it's sort of a fascinating case. And we'll probably do a um, a show on it tomorrow uh, during the daytime. I, there hasn't been any new developments that I know of, but it's a horrible uh, situation. Uh, 51-year-old woman murdered in her own home, stabbed like 58 times. Just, just outrageous. And I don't want to get into the case too much here, but we'll be covering it more tomorrow. Anyway, I want to just thank you guys for coming on the show tonight. Pete Ficelli, do you have any last words for our, our listeners? 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I think your show is good. It's good to have these open dialogues for people to hear things truthful. No spin, you know. Uh, good to be on with Joe. I wish I had Joe's hair. If I had Joe's hair, <laughs> Joe so, Murray, final words from the defense attorney. My final words is a question to you, Bill. You, Police Off the Cuff, had this wonderful gathering at Bardot, Joe Lisi's place on Restaurant Row. It was absolutely wonderful because you got to meet guys like Pete who all showed up. You know, we watched the show and now you see them there and you get to talk to them. And I met so many people. That's how I met Scott Wagner. When are you doing it again? We need you know, I'm going I'm to get a hold of Joe Lisi. I'm the sure he would. Breaking, the masks are coming off. There's no yeah. more vax requirement. Just Let's set this thing up because I thought that was phenomenal. It was fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure Joe Lisi would love to have us back, and uh, I'll give him a call. You know, I'm actually going to be having uh, surgery in, in May, early May 11th. I'm having my right hip replaced, Ouch. so oh, that's going to take me a little bit of recovery. And yeah. uh, I, I, I had my left hip replaced three years ago. It just runs in my family bed. Uh, arthritis in the hips so shepherds, uh, yeah. yeah so i'm gonna have that i gotta sort of chill out till that's done but i would love to uh do it sometime over the summer even in september and i'm sure joe lisi the retired captain and probably the most successful actor in nypd history actor cop the guy's been on like over 100 tv shows really legitimate actor you know and uh and he owns the the bardo one of the owners but uh yeah. So uh, yeah, I would Even love to do young it. Kid, that young kid was there is now on the job. Like he was. That's that right. That's right. There. You know, and we met some of the greatest people that we hadn't met. We just know them from the show. Yeah. People in the chat and people that correspond with us via email. And it was so nice to meet everyone in person. You're right. I, I want to talk to Joe Lisi about that. Absolutely. That was really well, a great thing. And then Pete, I'd love to meet you in person, you know, no, it'd be great. Uh, it'd be great. I would, him, I would look yeah. forward to that. I'd get up to New York for that. No doubt about it. Love Absolutely, it. guys. All right, folks. Uh, again, the police off the cuff, and I'll see some of you guys tomorrow. I'll let you know when I'm doing the show tomorrow. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Joe Murray, criminal defense attorney and retired ATF commander in chief, Peter Ficelli. <laughs> Good seeing you guys. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Bye. One episode, just